Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Survive and Thrive, a podcast that brings you stories and perspectives on how in changing times, leaders and organizations can not only transform to survive, but also thrive. I'm your host, Jennifer Ayers. This season, our third season, we want to help our listeners learn how to positively influence the change that they want to see in their organization, how to minimize disruption, and even normalize the concept that change is constant. We plan to do this by exploring the eight themes we've covered in season two. We refer to these eight themes that are around driving meaningful, impactful, and sustainable change in season two, episode nine. So in this season, we wanted to show our audience why it's important to pay attention to these principles and what it's like to put them into practice. We wanted to invite guests to our show to share stories on what's worked, what's not worked, and what perspectives they can offer on how organizations can thrive. I'm really excited to have Rachana Bide with me today. Rachana is a longtime friend of mine, and I've had the privilege of working alongside her many years ago at Accenture. She is a leadership enthusiast and has a wonderful background also that includes broadcasting. I'm excited to have someone as talented as Rachana on our show today. She has global experience leading various programs across Germany, Switzerland, Austria, etc. She's worked in consulting, media, and on a fabulous project she'll share in a bit. She's previously worked at Bloomberg and has had opportunities to interview, moderate, and facilitate some well-known events. She has a perspective on how organizations can thrive and change that I'm excited for you to hear. So, Rachana, let's hear a little background first. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I'm smiling so big because it's such an amazing opportunity to speak with you. Of course, you being a former Accenture colleague and then now really in the past decade, you and I staying connected in the work that you're doing to drive change now, especially in these modern times. So thank you for having me. I'm happy to introduce myself with just a few more details than, than you've already given. Thank you for that warm intro. I am a 21-year leadership psychologist, leadership workplaces, organizations, and the psychology of what motivates people to bring their best to work. And in the 20 years, 21 years that I've had, The first 14 were with you at Accenture, where I did a lot of global change management consulting, finishing my 14 years as a change management leader in Germany. So being an American, going to Germany, and not just deploying change management to the German-speaking regions, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, but really all over the world, gave me an additional perspective on what it means to engage people, how to define stakeholders in a meaningful way when you're looking at multiple cultures and multiple countries. So that was a really great opportunity for me to expand what I had done at Accenture in the U.S. and take it a bit global. Furthermore, then after Accenture, I came back to the U.S. here to New York, where I am right now talking to you, and got to stand up a change management function in-house at Bloomberg. And that was a great opportunity as well to build capability inside a professional services, financial services organization. And Bloomberg was already also really wonderful as well because I got an opportunity to exercise a growth mindset for myself, which is something that as change management practitioners, especially when we talk about resilience, we encourage our leaders to do. For me, I got a chance to do that for myself as I pivoted 
into broadcasting. And so waking up at four in the morning and going and learning how to write news headlines, eventually then being able to read those headlines on Bloomberg Radio London, and later being able to interview a lot of thought leaders, politicians, startup founders for Bloomberg Live was also a really amazing opportunity that being in New York afforded me. Um, And since then, I've been really continuing to dedicate myself to the craft of change management, specifically around engaging, motivating people. And as a leadership psychologist in the formal sense, because since our time together at Accenture, Jennifer, um, one of the other things I did here in New York was get my master's degree in organizational psychology. I've been really excited to apply some of those deeper lessons in personality and group dynamics into what we may not see in the workplace so readily, but is always there and present. And how can we navigate that in a productive way? I want to focus on engagement through the lens of organizational psychology. How can, in times of change, leaders utilize engagement to successfully undergo that change? Stakeholder engagement is a pretty well-known cornerstone of good change management. So good change starts with a vision of a leader, a very clear vision. And then very quickly, that leader, as you said, understands that they need to get stakeholders on board. And a good change management plan, and you and I, Jennifer, we've been doing this for 20, 25 years now, does have a really good stakeholder engagement plan in place. So often that's an actual stakeholder assessment. It's where you can identify which groups will be impacted by a change, how motivated they are. Also, a lot of these models that we use have change agents or change influencers, where you find people in the organization that can help evangelize the change, um, if that's a word that we're still using, or get people who they're close to to be engaged based on the roles that they play um, and, of course, what influence that that change agent can bring. So typically, those things are usually well-baked into change management plans. And what often we find with respect to what those vehicles are looking to do, they're really looking to do two things. They're looking to inform and they're looking to inspire or engage. So stakeholder engagement, I like to think about with those two objectives, to inform and to inspire or to engage. And the informing part is actually probably, I'll say, the most important to get right before we talk about inspiring and engaging. But that's the inspiring and the engaging part is what makes good change great. So to make it good, you do need to do the first component, which is to inform. And that's very, somewhat very plainly to say, here's what you do today, here's what's changing tomorrow, and then anticipating by audience group, how significant of an impact is that going to be to the audience group? How much might they adopt or resist it based on what they know today? And as such, what do we need to do to continue to inform them about what's changing tomorrow so that when the go live happens or when that change is instituted, there's no surprises. So a lot of that, when you talk about a system change, it could be processing payables by spreadsheet is now going to be done in a computer system. So that's a pretty big change. But then, you know, how do people deal with their vendors? That might be an emotional change for some people who now have to pick vendors, let's say, from a pre-approved catalog. So that might be something we want to anticipate. And we want to inform people well in advance so that they have time to react and also potentially put their fingerprints a little bit on what the change will look like. 
And that last part I just mentioned around putting their fingerprints around what the change will look like is where we pivot a bit into the second objective of stakeholder engagement, which goes beyond informing of what's changing and into inspiring people and motivating them and engaging them to use the change. And so one way to do that, and I can give certainly more examples as we continue to talk, uh, one way to do that is to allow people to put their proverbial fingerprints on the change in a way that's meaningful. And that's where a lot of leaders either don't have the time or they might not understand exactly what we mean by letting people weigh in on a change because they don't want it to go awry. So that's the inflection point where we want to keep people to continue to understand the change in, you know, so that they can meet that second objective to be inspired or engaged. And I think that's where we as leadership psychologists and change experts can really help leaders. Mm, I love that. Inform and inspire. That is so true and really succinct. And um, I might have to borrow that in some of my current work, <laughs> by the way. Um, As you should, please do. <laughs> we've been borrowing from each other for years. So um, I yes. always appreciate uh, your selflessness. I want to switch gears a little and ask Rachana about her experiences in helping leaders and organizations navigate change. What were some of the challenges she faced and what did she learn from them? Pretty much every change project we do, we attempt to put some inspiring and some motivating on top. And some of those can fall short if it's all inspiration. So if it's tchotchkes that go live and if it's all about PR and press, people can pretty much see through that. And that doesn't really even engage them in a way that's meaningful to them. So the example I'll share with you is one that typically as consultants who do this kind of work, we get asked on a project like this, which is a a merger. So after a post-merger integration, how do you galvanize teams to work together? So in this example of how we were able to get people to motivate themselves for a change was really allowing them to look inside themselves. So that's one tip that as we continue chatting, Jennifer, I hope people who are listening will see that so much of helping people get motivated for a change is simply us giving them the space and the workshops or the activities to let them reflect and define on their own terms. And so what I'm going to explain now is a term and a tactic called appreciative inquiry. And essentially what we did with this team where we had two different organizations that came together And I ran a teaming exercise for them. And what I asked them to do was an exercise in appreciative inquiry where I paired people up together. So it's always nice to have people do this exercise with one other person. So they build a little bit of intimacy and a bit of a like a buddy during the exercise or the activity. And so I paired people up one from each legacy organization and asked them two very specifically worded questions. One was talk about a time in the last two weeks where you were really engaged at work. The second question was a variation of that, which was talk about a time in the last month where you were really inspired at work. Other variations of this question could be things like a time when you brought the best of your skills. But basically, the the wording of the questions within a time frame so that's very specific allows people to think about on their own terms, what motivates them? 
what were the great experiences that they had? And as they talk simply to their partner, they are doing the appreciative inquiry exercise. They're appreciating within, they're reflecting, and they're retelling a story. And what then we I do is have the partner listen and just take notes. And this is all very transparent at the beginning. So everybody knows how their story is going to be shared. And the keywords that the partner writes down eventually can turn into cues for values or emotional hooks that then can be used to define the new shared culture together. So ultimately, at the end of this exercise, what you have is people who've been given the space to reflect on the amazing things that they've brought to their former organizations. And then together, you know, you can put them on post-it notes or on index cards and start looking and, you know, map them on the table and start together defining what the culture is that you want. And when I say what that you want, the culture is that the people want. And the you in this case is the leader and the leader can either participate in this or watch. But often what we can allow for when we do an exercise like this is these individuals are not changing the merger outcome. They're not resisting that this is the way the new state is going to be. What they're doing is adding the inevitable culture that's going to emerge anyway, because those are the covert things that people bring into the organization. They are productively and resourcefully pulling the best of themselves out and almost making kind of a verbal commitment and an intangible contract with their new peers about how they're going to commit to the new organization. So in that example, actually, what a a success outcome that I saw um, that really made me smile was one of the the bow on the exercise that we did at the end was to put all of the different keywords and values that they had come up with on post-its onto this big wall. And they, by their own accord, they were already, they were working together and they spelled it out in the name of the new company, which I thought was really amazing and unifying to witness. Wow. That is awesome. (laughs) What a great example. Let's zero in on that. Rachana used a phrase that I absolutely love, appreciative inquiries. What exactly is that? A partner had used that term at a community meeting back at Accenture when, gosh, this must have been, I might have been four or five years into my career. And I didn't understand what it meant until what, 10, 12 years later when I was in grad school and learned the term specifically as a lot of really great organizational psychologists use it for diversity, because diversity is about bringing your own story into the room in a way that's resourceful and productive and psychologically safe. So appreciative inquiry really is looking within, focusing on strength, and asking a question, being, you know, inquiring in a way that elicits not an expected response, but elicits the spirit of a response that's going to take you forward in a positive way. So by asking the question, talk about a time in the past two weeks, so it should be time bound, that brought you joy, then what you're doing is you're basically accessing a part of a person, excuse me, they're accessing a part of themselves that they want to share, that had a positive outcome, that they can then build on when they need to be resilient So that's what appreciative inquiry is. The appreciative part is appreciating the good 
the inquiry part is to inquire within and ask the question in a slick and well-designed way that you get a really specific response. And then together, appreciative inquiry allows you to focus on the good because what we focus on then tends to grow. You know, you had mentioned earlier the corner of the court project, which is a side project that I did around empowering male allies and empowering women to talk about their careers in a really bold way while encouraging male allies, encouraging men to play a role as allies in the workplace. All of that was appreciative inquiry because it was all driven based on stories of that individual women wanted to share that were positive. After Me Too, that was a pretty uh, well-received approach when you're talking about something as difficult as racial diversity or gender equality, certainly in the late 2010s. Um, But I will also say that one technique that I've used with teams going through change, and it's a little bit of an advanced technique, but certainly as people understand appreciative inquiry and they've done it for themselves, they're then able to start learning how to write those questions. And so if there are teams that are looking through the change process to have some tools after go live, I always encourage teams and I sit with them and have them create their own questions that they can use during team meetings. So for example, they'll learn how to write a question that says, what about the new, whatever the project is, mission excites you? Talk about what excited you when you came to this company as a new hire. So some of those things that we tend to forget, but are in us all the time, bringing those to the surface also can really help as you're anticipating a go-live for a change. I love that Rachana's exercise focuses on the positive in a time when it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the negative. But positivity isn't just impactful at work, it can change your life. According to the Mayo Clinic, positive thinking can increase your lifespan, lower rates of depression or distress, as well as lead to better coping skills during times of hardship. Positivity can not only improve your mental health, but your physical health as well. Also, a study at John Hopkins found that those with a positive mindset, including those more at risk due to family history, were 13% less likely to experience a heart attack or other coronary event than their negative counterparts. While being positive is by no means the answer to everything, it can certainly help improve your life mentally, physically, and professionally. Rachana also touches on how curiosity can be a powerful tool as well. That is the foundation of empathy, and it's the foundation of good design. It's when we're so curious and enthralled by the people who we are impacting to learn their lives, not anticipate what we think they're going to say, but really like almost follow them around and see what motivates them and what quirky behaviors come out. That's where really awesome interventions can happen or even products can be designed from there. And I know you've done a lot with design thinking, um, Jennifer, and we've talked a little bit about that too. And so that curiosity piece is fundamental, not just for managing change, but then also driving change. I love it. In thinking about our conversation, I love that Rachana brought up empathy. In episode one of this season, I spoke with Kevin Campbell about how you can build a case for change within an organization by utilizing your empathy as a leader. I think empathy 
is such a relevant and prevalent word for 2020 and 2021. What Rachana touches on is that we haven't yet covered putting some of these exercises into practice that really can help leaders bolster their own empathy. I am personally delighted that it is becoming so talked about now, especially in the last 18 months. And also before COVID, we as practitioners had an inkling that we're going to need to have more heart-centered leaders. And even as change management experts, this is something we've been wanting from our organizations for years. One thing that I think is a bit frustrating is empathy is not about being nice. And it's not just about caring about other people. Those are both important components. But the empathy that really makes people feel connected and the empathy that then subsequently can drive change outcomes isn't even about you and how you treat other people. It's about how you observe other people. And I almost like to say it's the the best way to think about it is to think about yourself as an anthropologist. So you're almost in the wild as a neutral observer. And you just observe how people interact, the things that motivate them. A lot of empathy work. And when you look at empathy, even in change, just to ask people, you know, in my stakeholder assessment, I want to know the three things that I could do to motivate this group to meet the change. A lot of times what people say isn't even necessarily what actually does motivate them. So one tool to answer your question now, very specifically, how do we get leaders to do empathy? I think one of the best ways to do it is to teach them how to be coaches. So good coaches, good therapists, but coaching in particular, as it applies to the workplace, is all about asking questions to the coachee and not giving suggestions, not projecting your own agenda into what they say, but learning how to let them be resourceful and solve their own problems. The best thing that a coach can do in that instance is to just hold space and allow the coachee to talk and to come up with and to express things that maybe on the surface they thought were one way, but then the more you coach, and if you're a really good coach, you get out, you know, almost like pumping a well. The first couple of pumps don't really get any water out. It's usually air. But then when you really keep pumping, you get the good water out of the underground. That's kind of what happens in a good coaching assignment. And so a great way to help leaders understand how to be empathetic is to teach them how to be good coaches. Wow. I love it. Another word that has come up a lot on this show and in our culture these past 18 months, I would say, is resilience. Tenet 7 of our eight tenants for change management speaks about how companies can build resilience in their organizations. I asked Rachana for her thoughts on this matter. I don't know that any of us can claim to be experts. And certainly, we've all been resilient on our own terms in the last 18 months. Even before COVID, when I would talk about change and teach change management to groups that had never heard of it, I always anchored on the personal first. And that would be to say that everybody is a wild, raving success at managing change in their own lives. Because we've all done it. Even though when we look back, we might have remembered how painful it was, we managed to do it. And so anchoring on the personal is very important 
to be able to help people frame when we talk about resilience in organizations. It's all the same skills that you as an individual have been exercising in your own life. Some ways to make that a little more concrete, and I'll say that it's really important for an organization before they need resilience to start cultivating it. So if we haven't started, you know, as they say, the best time to start is yesterday. If we didn't start yesterday, let's start today. And some ways, concrete ways to do that are to help the individuals in their own capability and their own development. And so I think tools like Myers-Briggs is not one of my favorites, but it's a really accessible one personality workplace tools that can be helpful for individuals to reflect on their own styles are really good. And every company has their own preferred use. Some use Myers-Briggs, some use DISC. I tend to like Hogan. um, And for some organizations that might be open to something a little bit more of a blend of corporate and spiritual, I like to use the Enneagram. Because when you get away from just Myers-Briggs, which again is, is, is good, it's not one of my favorites, you get away from these instruments that are just about overt behavior and you start getting into motivators of people. And then you allow people to, it's less about what the test says and more about giving them a space with a coach or with themselves to reflect on what motivates them. And a lot of times then when you have a coach who is able to guide someone through their results, people will see, oh, you know, no wonder I love going to training classes so much. I have a learning orientation. That's something I value. And a lot of times that will inform just independent of the change we're talking about, just how people can thrive in their own careers. But then having this deep self-awareness and deep understanding of what motivates people then allows people more insight and again, more self-awareness to anchor against when times are difficult. And then I'll also say that when those individuals, because I just sort of said individuals, those can be leaders, those can be employees. Personally, I think every individual in a company should be able to have access to these kinds of tools and coaching. When people are sitting at the table to make leadership decisions around the direction of a change, around the vision, they're also sitting at the table with people who are equally self-aware and the team just gels in a way that then they're driving change around naturally how they've been operating, which is around what motivates them and a deep self-awareness of what their derailers are versus learning those things for the first time, which is often what happens when big change happens. People like us come in and as part of leadership alignment, we get to do those things and get to align leaders and get to talk to them about their leadership styles, it would be ideal if those things were part of the culture of a company well before uh, it's needed. I love that you incorporate this discussion point on how to help the individual develop their capacity, their passion, etc. I talked about this on a previous podcast that I read Hubert Jolie's um, book, The Heart of Business. And in that, he talks about fostering mastery as being one of the important aspects to unleash the magic in an organization. And when we're sitting at a time that is termed the great resignation, because of so many individuals in the workforce just saying, you know, it's not, uh, it's not here for me, whatever it is, uh, you know, there's something else for me somewhere else. And so ways that we can reach those individuals and either nurture them in their journey, and maybe they don't stay with your organization, but maybe they're better 
people leaving your organization and have good things to say about you if you're nurturing them in a way that supports their individual passions and interests. So I love that you bring that point forward. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, we don't want people to leave, but what an ideal scenario of the worst case scenario is people leave. But the ideal part of that is they leave really self-aware. And we know that they're leaving us because they have direction and what they really know they want to do versus they're just getting out of a bad situation and they're going to continue to spin their wheels. With utilizing empathy, resilience, and positivity, Rachana knows the best ways to set up an organization for success. I also asked her, what are three things leaders can do in organizations to not just survive, but thrive and change? So I think the first thing is that leaders should participate in every activity that the troops participate in. And this is not just for window dressing. This is not just, although this is on the checklist of good leader behaviors, visible leadership is on the checklist. But this doesn't just meet that. This also develops to what we were talking about earlier, empathy. The more that leaders can also do the activities of defining what the values are, defining the culture of this particular project, that will help the leader also stay grounded and maybe even help them inform something that would be better for the change at the end. So that's one piece is leaders should be very much doing the engagement and inspiring activities that their people are doing. The second thing I would say to leaders to move from simply surviving and into thriving is maybe to even look at this as an analogy of informing and inspiring. So surviving and being able to survive a change is really about that first component of stakeholder engagement that we talked about at the beginning, which is informing. So you have to tell people what to expect before the system is live so that there are no surprises and then you mitigate accordingly. That's good change management and you can survive a change by doing the informing piece. Thriving gets to that second piece, which is about inspiring and motivating and engaging. And so all of that stuff that we tend to, and I, I, you know, again, we don't want to misdirect our efforts around it, but we do want to be very intentional with those motivating activities we do. So it's not just, I mentioned it earlier, it's not just tchotchkes and pens and fun giveaways. It's actually meaningful ways for people to understand what they bring to an organization, what they bring to a change initiative. And then on their terms, they can participate. And I've seen things like, you know, the vision, the project vision is posted and everybody walks in and they have a beautiful photo, a headshot of themselves on their desk with three of the values that they have come up with as a, as a team. And then they all go up and they can put their picture up against the vision and sign their name and they've contributed in some way. You know, that's not a very fancy, big way to motivate people, but it's a really personalized way for people to engage. So when we're talking about moving from surviving to thriving, I would say it's really being intentional about pivoting from informing stakeholders to meaningfully engaging, inspiring them. And I think the third one is more of a mindset shift. But this is a good message for leaders as well who are open to this, which is to make room for a generative way of managing change or a generative way of design. So 
this is a bit different than how we typically do things in business, which is quite linear. So a lot of change is linear. And, you know, an an example that I think you and I worked on at a client in Boston, which was, you know, a regulatory requirement comes in and all of a sudden forms have to be filled out in a certain way and they have to be administered on time. And that's a big change for people. That's not, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room we can do with that. That is a pretty straightforward change. But then if you want to be really generative beyond the linear, allow for people then to play around with the incentives or to play around with understanding how people fill out those forms today and what could make it better. And not rushing to say, we're going to have to implement this according to a roadmap by this date, because that's what the plan says, but rather just making that a spirit of how you engage with your workforce. That then allows for you to do a couple things. One is it's, I think it's just a very healthy mindset for organizations and for people to have, because you start becoming more in a growth mindset. You're not solving problems. You're just enhancing the natural way of doing things to make things even more productive for people. You're also finding a way to let the change live. And those are the most successful changes are the ones that we don't just forget about when we flipped a switch and, oh my gosh, thank goodness we survived it. But we're so excited to continue to make it something that's working for us and that we can contribute to. So having this generative mindset where for the things that we can be open to designing in whatever way we want to design, don't put a time limit on it build a culture of curiosity so that people can submit their ideas and find ways to improve. And that will lead to, of course, a culture that thrives, but then that also makes your change initiative that much more successful. That's awesome. Those are great, Rachana. And you've already shared so many interesting insights in this conversation. Before we wrap up, Rachana tells us about a very special project she is working on, which encourages positive psychology. Thank you for asking. Um, and I, I'm actually looking at some of my Fonty materials here. Fonty here in New York City, I designed him in my apartment. He's an elephant. And he is a metaphor for positive psychology. And there's a lot of layers and depth to what Fonty represents for me personally as a psychologist. So like, thank you tenfold, Jennifer, for asking about him, um, the elephant, and also how I've been writing his stories. Um, Basically, he is an elephant who comes to New York City to be a window washer. And I created writing these stories simply as another tool for the people who I coach to be able to look at New York City through the eyes of, you know, also a very big animal and draw metaphors. Because I think when we talk about empathy, that's the first stage in design thinking. Metaphors and reframes are another thing in design thinking. So I like to bring metaphors into the work that I do. So I've been writing about this elephant for gosh, 18 months now. And a lot of what inspired me after the initial writing was my own personal decision to stay in New York City during the pandemic. And I would walk around the city and it was completely, there was nobody, not a soul in the city. And I said, my gosh, you know, this elephant that I've created this metaphor for love skyscrapers and look, all of these buildings are empty. What does that mean for society? And what does that mean for someone who's going through a change in their own career? So there were a lot of metaphors that I found that then I could pivot into some of these positive psychology lessons that we've talked about, and even further into compassion and a lot of the humanity that I was seeing during the pandemic in New York City. 
captured through this, this elephant, you know, he's an essential worker. Um, so a lot of those themes, I think. And then the other thing that for me, just personally, which kind of goes back to the point that we talked about around leadership and how leaders should also be participating in doing the activities that their people are doing. For me, this was another growth mindset activity in a really tough time. Um, you know, I was by myself in New York City. I made the decision to just sort of isolate because of the pandemic. But for me to basically go from a corporate broadcasting, very public media background to essentially just becoming an artist and writing and learning how to write a screenplay. And I did a lot of research on New York City back when Sesame Street was created and learned about how history had evolved in our city in New York. All those things contribute into the story. And so for me, it was also a really big year of growth in a way that I never thought would have been a possible if I hadn't been afforded the opportunity. And I, I don't mean to sound Pollyanna. It was a very difficult time for everyone during the pandemic for me to be able to find joy through writing in a way that was brand new to me that I had sort of loved when I was a kid, but forgot about. I think that's also a really important lesson for people as we think about growth and resilience. That is awesome. And I can't wait to meet Fonty. Is there a... Uh... <laughs> Is there a time frame when he will be available for meeting? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's in my heart. Um, he's in my writings. Um, he's on Instagram. So similar to design thinking, I've I've actually prototyped him the way you would any other product. So it's on Instagram. It's called Fonty Tales. F-O-N-T-Y is the name of the elephant. Fonty Tales. All one word. Um, and so more to come. We'll see if he becomes... He'll become what he's intending to become. Well. We have Fonty's Instagram link on the show notes, and I would highly recommend checking out Fonty's page. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I mean, it's an honor to have you today, especially how busy you are at literally traveling the world, moderating, emceeing, interviewing. You, you have an, a big interview coming up with Simon Sinek, so good luck with that. And uh, it's really just awesome to, to spend time with you. I really appreciate you coming on our podcast today. Jennifer, likewise, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. And I look forward to the offline discussions where we can talk even more. You're such an amazing inspiration and thought partner to me. So thank you for the time today. Well, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening and joining our episode of Survive and Thrive podcast. Remember, at Consinity, we empower the conscious leader to realize positive and sustainable change. Until next time, don't just survive, thrive. Take care.